0: When all else fails, maybe a snowstorm is what we needed to keep people home and not spreading the coronavirus. And man, we are having one hell of a snowstorm. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and we do have a full house today, unlike yesterday with technical difficulties. Laura Johnston's back with the strong signal. Chris Ranowski's here. Jane is here. How about this? First winter storm of the year. I know Laura's excited. (laughs)
1: Woohoo! I'm hoping the ski hill will open soon. (laughs) It's
2: a miracle we're all here and that our power didn't go out. Oh, now you jinxed it.
0: (laughs) Okay, maybe we won't have a full house. Jade's going down. (laughs) All right, let's get started. What kind of capacity problems are Ohio hospitals starting to have because of the ever-increasing coronavirus surge? Jane Kuhn, this is getting very concerning. Some of the anecdotes we got from the Monday coronavirus briefing, like the ones doing them on Mondays for the rest of the month, I guess, are scary. What did, uh, what did they talk about?
2: Yeah. Well, first, in terms of numbers, the hospital patient count tripled in November. We now have more than 5,000 people in hospitals. And in in November they reported 205,366 new coronavirus cases that's just for November when you consider that the total for the year is like 421,000 it, it's amazing but there there is room at Ohio hospitals overall but that's largely because of hospital efforts to limit the use of their beds by by other non COVID patients. Um, So, so there is, there is still a vacancy rate overall, but, you know, some hospitals, their ICUs are getting overcrowded, especially the smaller ones. They, the hospital folks told stories of continuing to have to uh, borrow ventilators, you know, between hospitals. And there was one case where an unnamed hospital Borrowed a refrigerated truck to store bodies of patients, and that's up died. here, right? That's, that's, that's somewhere. A, in, somewhere I mean, Northern I think Ohio. It might be Northern Ohio, yeah, but um, they didn't say which which one it was. But but you're right. Some of those personal stories were they were the most compelling things. They had several nurses on, and they just were really passionate in saying, you know, they wish people were doubters about the seriousness of this virus they they wished that they could join them in their units or or they could wear a GoPro so that people could see like the fear and the pain and the suffering by patients and how quickly some of them are deteriorating even young and otherwise healthy people who they said were just succumbing to this and they they also described the physical and the emotional toll this is taking on them you know they've had to provide not only care medical care but but comfort to these suffering patients whose families are not allowed to visit them and hold their hands and one of them said she expected healthcare workers to to suffer from post traumatic stress following the the pandemic so it was just as i said the one said yeah i wish people could come in here and see this but on the other hand i i don't want anybody to witness what what we have to witness now
0: Well, it was it was more of what our reporter Julie Washington did with her series that ran over the four day, five days of Thanksgiving weekend where she the the front lines of covid and, and nurses and others. And you're starting to see more and more stories like this, more and more stories by people who doubted COVID, who then get it and say, I'm a believer. Washington Post has a story today of a very elderly couple married forever, decided they weren't going to let COVID control their lives, and they got it and died because they threw caution to the wind. You wonder if if that message is repeated as frequently as it seems to be being repeated right now, that the doubters will get it because – you know, Chris Murnowski was talking before the podcast began. Mike DeWine has said it too many times to count that you need to take precautions. This is going to spread. This is very bad. And Jane, he got a little worked up yesterday. Yeah. When know. he was asked about, hey, they're trying to to throw you out again. Somebody has filed impeachment papers. And he, he Mike DeWine, doesn't often get stern, but he got kind of angry.
2: Yeah. It, it was an interesting, uh, contrast, you know, or juxtaposition, if you will, when when somebody asked him about, you know, these attempts to rein in his power. And I guess our friend John Becker officially filed, you know, he's still trying to file these impeachment articles against DeWine. And this was like right after we heard all these stories. And Dewine was like, you know, this is just silly. This is a minority of the population in Ohio who feel this way. But they need to talk to these people who we just heard from. They need to, you know, experience what the healthcare workers are experiencing and, and see this. And he's just like, this is just silly. It's got to stop.
3: It's, it's interesting that we're, we're still seeing people who just don't believe this is a problem that, that there there's no fear for it for some people. And, and I think we're hitting a point a, a, a very practical point where this could affect everybody's life. I mean, if you went out, and got into a car wreck right now in this snowstorm, you know, there are hospitals in this state that might not be able to take you. You know, there are hospitals, we're, we're hitting that point where, you know, very quickly, by the way, we went from having, I I heard one of the doctors say yesterday that we went from having something like 1200 people in ICUs to 4,000 people in ICUs in a very short, alarming amount of time. And, and when we start to have these capacity issues at hospitals, look, it's not like we're alone in this. It's not like this is new news. We can look at what happened in other parts of the world and see this slow train wreck that's coming to us, which means that hospitals are going to have to start making very difficult decisions about who gets care and who is going to get treated. And what's going to happen is is that people who have things like heart attacks and people who have things like other medical emergencies are going to be at risk of of just not being able to get care at a hospital. And that's terrifying. You know, it, it's forget about the coronavirus. If you have other health problems, if you manage to skirt the coronavirus, but you have something else wrong with you health wise, you might be at risk of, of of getting lower quality care or not having access to care. And right, that's gonna, I think that's w. what people aren't thinking about is that this goes beyond just you this goes just beyond your health but it also goes beyond the coronavirus this is this is starting to sort of get to the point where it affects other parts of our healthcare system and you know we're starting to see them yeah. slowly pull back on surgeries and things like that it's alarming and and people need to take it serious and and frankly it's nice to see dewine stop coddling these people you know it's time to stop acting like children and and it's beyond that time we're months beyond the time that people
0: need yeah. to grow the heck okay. up <laughs> all right you're listening to this week in the CLE Who would be eligible for the $2 million in mortgage assistance that the Cuyahoga County Council looks likely to approve as a pandemic aid? Chris, this is Armin Budish and the County Council trying to use up all that federal money that they got before the deadline of December 30th, which is a stupid deadline. And a lot of politicians are coming out trying to get the Trump administration to change it, but so far not. So they're in a rush to get the money used.
3: Right. This is some money that the county got from the Housing and Urban Development Agency. And if approved by the full council, they're going to provide uh, $2 million worth of mortgage assistance and financial counseling for homeowners that have fallen behind on payments due to the coronavirus. I think their their plan is to help about 800 households, which roughly comes out to about $2,500 in assistance. They're also going to give Two hundred thousand of this money to three nonprofit organizations that are going to administrate the the background check portion of of this process. So, to qualify, I think you would have to be a moderate to low income family of four that has an income. Uh, let's see, I think at or below about sixty thousand dollars a year. So. You know, this is some good news for for people who who do need some relief. But you're right; it's it's they've put this this clock on it that has to be, you know, that they have to sort of meet by December 31st. So, you know, it's, they just it's, have to commit it, right? Because right, you can't right, get yeah. the,
0: until the first of the year, but they have to right. uh, allocate it. Yeah, let, let me ask very- you this: the story. Had a list of suburbs, not a long list that are not Mm -hmm. eligible. One was Hunting Valley. And, you know, nobody in Hunting Valley is going to meet those income requirements. (laughs) But but there were a bunch. I think Euclid, Lakewood, that were not eligible. Why weren't they eligible? There's
3: Brecksville, East Cleveland, Euclid, Cleveland, uh, Hunting Valley, Lakewood, and Parma. Um, I don't know that the story really explains why.
1: Those I, are I can add in. Okay, this, this is Laura Johnston. So those cities, all except for Brexville, which like Hunting Valley, has its. Oh, um, they decided not to participate. The other cities, including Cleveland, ha- are getting money directly from the federal government. So you, if you live there, you can still get it. You just need to apply with your city rather than through the county. Wow, that's
0: a stream of money.
3: Well, but <laughs> it's also like, again- So
1: complicated a little bit for you.
3: Right, I mean, they've turned this into a confusing bureaucratic mess, you know, and, and they're paying nonprofits $200,000, which could go to other, fa- you know, it may mean, okay, you know, right, help right. 80 other homeowners at that rate.
0: If I live in Lakewood, would I rather apply through the county government, which is more screwed up, or my own government? I kind of think that Lakewood people might be in better shape. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will the third time be the charm for Playhouse Square, which has announced again its plans to be back in operation? This time, they're saying it'll be by this time next year. Laura Johnston, count me skeptical. They've announced several times they're coming back and then didn't because no one can see the future. And yet the timing of this suspiciously comes on the afternoon before Giving Tuesday. This is the time of the year where every nonprofit's got a handout. This is where they get their money. And I just think this is a little bit shaky coming out. How can you possibly know that the touring companies will be on the road Next November, how do you know that everything will be in abeyance i that question why you're announcing this one year ahead of time, so go ahead, enlighten us
1: <laughs> well, I really hope that this is the the right timetable, but you are correct that this is we they had two rather optimistic um timetables before the last I heard they said that they were starting their Broadway series in January, which obviously everyone knew that wasn't going to happen for them. Uh, in April, they had announced that Frozen was going to open on uh, August fifteenth. So that obviously didn't come to pass, and they were still hopeful about Hamilton. So anyway, they have had to to push back the schedule twice. This time, they think Playhouse Square thinks that it's got it right. Uh, because they've been working with some of the the Broadway touring uh, shows, and and they believe that with the vaccine coming, that they are hopeful this will be the right time frame. Um, Playhouse Square is the biggest U.S. theater district outside of New York City. It has had to cancel or postpone 680 shows since March. They've laid off or furloughed nearly 200 employees, and they just got about 615 thousand dollars in CARES money. So they are are still floating, but. Um, the idea is they've they've kept a lot of their subscribers for the KeyBank Broadway series, and they want to they want to hold on to those oh, wait, people. Wait, 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 wait!
0: They've kept paid. a lot of the subscribers' money from the KeyBank <laughs> Broadway. I think series. it's like
1: thirty five thousand people have they've yes, I, I and I am one of the subscribers. They gave money back for shows that they outright canceled, but you're right for the twenty twenty one series, they still have my money from like twenty twenty. So they have done some refunds. But um, we still don't know what it's going to look like in the fall, which, you know, it's a year away. We don't know if the original series, which included Moulin Rouge, Pretty Woman, Hades Town, if any of those are coming back or we're going to look at a completely different set of shows.
0: Yeah, we have no clue. That's why I'm questioning the timing of the announcement you're listening to this week in the CLE. Has any Democratic Party chairman in Ohio had a worse record than David Pepper, who announced he'll be resigning Monday? Jane Cahoon, the last five years have been a disaster for state Democrats. There is almost no Democratic leadership in the state. The biggest name is Sherrod Brown, and I don't think the Ohio Democratic Party had anything to do with his reelection. So David Pepper is pretty much an abject failure in his role, right? Ouch. I don't even know where to begin <laughs> here.
2: I mean, there certainly have been other periods before Pepper's time where Republicans have dominated uh, especially in the governor's office. Like just just consider back to uh probably before anybody remembers in 1994 when George Voinovich was governor and he was running for re-election and his poor Democratic opponent Rob Birch famously got a quarter of the vote against him. So there yeah, but have George been... <laughs>
0: Voinovich would be counted as a liberal today, man, by today's yeah,
2: standard. Yeah, that's a good point, good point. And I guess that's ancient history. But, uh, you know, Pepper started after John Kasich was already in, in office. So he had a challenging job to try to break that lock that Republicans have had on state offices over the past several years. But you're right. He's been the guy at the top during two solid Donald Trump victories in Ohio. And during that, you know, what they were calling the blue wave of 2018, you know, here in Ohio, Republicans ended up sweeping all of the statewide offices, uh, the executive offices and failing to flip a, a single congressional seat, although we could Go off on a tangent about gerrymandering there, but um, a- as you said, that that was the year that Jared Brown was was reelected, so that was their their bright spot. Um, and then this year, you know, we had this major Republican scandal with the feds blowing open what they said was the sixty million dollar bribery scheme, the the largest in state history, and it brought down the Republican Ohio House Speaker. But you know, Republicans ended up solidifying their majorities in the legislature. So, anyway, you know, that was a departure from when they had the the CoinGate scandal back in like 2005 when they the Democrats broke Republican rule and swept almost every office. So so those days are gone, but anyway, in in his resignation letter, Pepper he took the blame for the for the defeats and he credited the party staff for any of the successes, which which did include the election of a, of a few Democrats to the Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah, those parties they, aren't it, listed on the ballot. So you right, right, that. right. But they did work on, on their behalf, but they didn't capture a majority there. But interestingly, another the way Pepper put it, um, he thinks that, you know, even though Trump won Ohio, that that Ohio did contribute to Trump's overall loss because Trump was forced to spend money and resources here that he could have spent elsewhere, and they they kept him they kept him going here. So
0: okay. you might that's, have
2: a point about that. That's but, warp thinking. Know. I mean, that's really
0: looking for some kind of silver lining. Look, the thing is, part of the role is to groom the future candidates of the party. We've talked about this repeatedly. There's almost nobody. In the Democratic Party, on the, in the landscape for the future, except maybe Nan Whaley. I, I guess you could talk about Ryan, but but that's the bench is empty. And so where you, you would have thought that Pepper looking around, knowing that the bench is empty, he would have started working in some of the counties that have big Democratic presences and trying to work to identify the future candidates. We got nothing. There's nothing going on in Ohio for the Democrats. The Republicans <laughs> rule, man.
2: I'm going to be a smartass here and say maybe he's groomed himself because you know there's there's speculation that he could try to run against Rob Portman. He's already run statewide twice for for auditor and for attorney general unsuccessfully. But anyway. well, if he
0: runs against Rob Portman, then I I know what we'll be calling Portman in two years senator. I just don't see, <laughs> I don't see that happening. I mean, he, he, he what do you do after five years of complete ineptitude as the party chairman? You run for For statewide office and think you're going to win? You
2: are cold.
0: Yeah, it's been an interesting five years. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are state and national groups getting involved in a federal court fight in Akron about the CDC's moratorium on evictions? Chris Wernowski, it was fascinating when the CDC put in the moratorium on evictions as a public health threat. And now you're seeing a lot of people get get involved in a lawsuit that seeks to overturn it. What's the story?
3: Right. So this sort of this story is sort of illustrative of how we don't we don't think of, you know, homelessness and and things like that as a as a public health issue, but this sort of illustrates it pretty well. A, a bunch of groups including the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Coalition of Homelessness and Housing in Ohio have have gotten together and filed uh, some briefs in a case in Akron in federal court, where a bunch of landlords have sued over the CDC uh, eviction moratoriums, basically saying that these 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 things are are making it difficult for them to make ends meet as landlords, and and they they're claiming that the agency's move to place the moratorium has basically put a disp- disproportionate burden on them uh, during this pandemic. But what was fascinating is to sort of see the argument by these organizations that that by evicting people and throwing people out of their homes, that you're putting them at higher risk of not only getting the virus, but spreading it. Because uh, a, ha- you know, a lot of people will end up moving in with family members if they're thrown out of their own homes. And what they're saying is that will generally increase the ability like those people's ability to to transmit or get the coronavirus. So so it's 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 an interesting way to sort of frame a public health issue in a way that we don't necessarily think about all the time.
0: But why is it centered in northeast Ohio? Why are we kind of the ground zero for this battle?
3: Well, you know, I mean, you could make the case that they were district shopping. They were, you know, they they found a a judge who might be sort of sympathetic to that. You know, John Adams has certainly a reputation for being, you know, unique in his approach to the law, if I want to (laughs) be diplomatic about it. But, you know, I mean, it's where I don't think we're alone in this. I I, I don't know this for a fact, but my, my guess is that there are probably
0: additional lawsuits filed in this around the country. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Cleveland need to spend $16 million on the Five Mile Crib, that iconic structure that is actually only 3.5 miles from the shore, oddly named? Laura Johnston, it's just a big tunnel that sucks water, and why does it need all that money?
1: Well, okay, first I have to give you my fun fact. So it's 3.5 miles from the shoreline, but five miles from the Kirtland pump station, hence the name 5 mile crib and pushes that water to the Baldwin treatment plant which is near University Circle. So this this crib is actually started being built in 1896. It's the only uh water intake in Cleveland that's above the water. So it's the one that gets uh the elements and and you know the wind and the rain and obviously the waves and so we've got to make sure that it stays in good shape. It's not falling apart or anything. But the work about 16 million dollars would Get it ready for the next 30 years so that we can keep our water intake strong. So they're going to rehabilitate major steel supporting beams that hold together the structure. They're going to improve the protective belt around the side of the crib. Um, They're going to upgrade the building atop the structure and replace the solar panels that provide power. So have any of you guys actually seen the crib up close? No. 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 It's actually very cool. I got to sail around it and um it is this iconic cleveland structure we even have like rock the lake t-shirts with an it on it that say chilling at the crib and um, honestly the first few years i drove the shoreway i thought i saw a giant laker out in the lake every time i passed it do
0: you are you're not allowed to like row up to it and stand on it right it's
1: you should not go on it no but there are um there are races out to the crib and i know boaters go out there it gets really buggy at some points in the summer but it's it is a you know, it's a spot in the lake that you can say, I'm going to get out there. And it, since it's 3.5 miles from shore, it's not, a, not an easy trip. I have never done it on a paddleboard.
0: So when we have heavy rains and all the sewage goes into the lake that you swim in, can that get out to that crib at three point five miles? No, that that's why, that why that it's far so
1: far out there. They built it before they had a water treatment plant, actually, and they—it's fifty. The pipe is fifty feet below the the bottom of the lake, and is actually dug by hand, which is really hard to imagine. But the idea why it was so far out there was it would be the clean water instead of the dirty water <laughs> we were flushing into the lake. <laughs>
0: yeah, clean water by 1800 standards. Okay, that's interesting. Hey, we why didn't are you... have
1: all the industry. Pl- looting it or the plastic
0: you're of just a fountain of of trivia about the the crib what's what's its other nickname then
1: what's what's another nickname
0: yeah there's another <laughs> it's known by something else who's in the story oh the kirtland crib oh
1: the kirtland crib that's not his nickname that's his actual name <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, well it's, it's also known by you're listening to this week in the cle Do the November 3rd election results show an even deeper divide between Ohio cities and the rest of the state? Jane, I got to tell you, Jane Cahoon, this story depressed me because I've been railing (laughs) about our rural overlords forever. We don't get to govern ourselves in the cities of Ohio. And it's even worse now.
2: Yeah, this was a stark illustration of this. Uh, Rich Exner took a dive into the Ohio presidential results. They were certified last Friday. So he found that Donald Trump for two elections straight not only won Ohio's traditionally Republican smaller uh, rural type counties, but he often did so by margins like double and triple of those achieved by uh, other recent Republican candidates for president like Mitt Romney and and John McCain. And as uh, Trump also expanded the, the GOP map by winning in places like Lorraine, Mahoning, and Trumbull counties. So by doing this, by by piling up these huge margins in these small rural counties, he blew away the nearly half million vote advantage that Joe Biden built up in the three biggest urban counties, Cuyahoga, Franklin, and, and Hamilton. Um, so outside of that area, uh, Rich reported that Trump rolled up an almost million vote lead before adding in a single vote from Cuyahoga, Franklin or Hamilton. So his overall victory, Trump's overall victory in Ohio was by 475,669 votes or 53.3 to 45.2. And and this all happened, even though it was a stronger performance by Democrats in some some of the um, urban areas than, than in the past, like Biden had, bigger margins of victory than Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama uh, in in the three biggest counties. So there you have it. It's, it's a big divide.
0: Yeah. And, uh, the overlords get stronger and uh, the city leaders get weaker. This does not bode well for the next decade. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We may as well talk about this because it's all anybody else is going to be talking about. <laughs> How much snow are we likely to see this week? And is this an omen of an ugly winter? Chris Fernanski, I've seen some stuff that says that there's an El Nino, La Nina, El Nino, something brewing that could mean we get a lot of moisture this year. This is a bad storm.
3: Yeah, talk about a a big first storm. Uh, I I don't know how much you guys have outside of your houses, but I I think we have about six to eight inches here uh, in Bay where I'm staying right now. Uh, but we're anticipated to get up to eighteen inches in some places, uh, eight to twelve in, in most, but. I think some of the uh, the places that get impacted by lake effect are, are looking at more 18 and close to 20 inches of snow. So we did have some flight cancellations already where we're, we're already experiencing power outages, thankfully not at any of our homes right now. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's this does not bode well for the rest of the winter, but maybe this will keep people home and, you know, out of the, uh, you know, out of making careless, uh, socializing decisions during during the middle of this pandemic, which is supposed to get, you know, just uh, worse throughout the winter.
0: Maybe this is just the convenience of my memory blocking it because it's painful. But I can't remember the last time we had a twelve inch snowstorm. Is anybody else, Laura? You're a big ski person, so you would know. When's the last time we got dumped on like this?
1: Not for the last couple years that I can remember and definitely not this early in the season cuz usually we're like crossing our fingers and maybe like 5 years ago we op- the ski hills opened right after thanksgiving <laughs> wait 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 um, wait
0: none of us are crossing our fingers except I you am we crossing- would rather not have this
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry do you want to be cooped up in your house all year or actually i guess you could go out easier in the roads when it's not snowing but i am looking forward i bought my epic pass for boston mills and i am hoping to get my money's worth out of it
3: Well, but the the thing is, is like, even if it doesn't snow, they manufacture snow, right? Not
1: unless it's below 28 degrees, though. So, yeah. So if you don't want snow, then just pray for cold.
3: We 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 shouldn't all have to suffer because the place that can manufacture (laughs) snow doesn't have to manufacture snow. But hey,
1: you know what? We've we've talked on this podcast a lot about the things that sold out because of the coronavirus. The pools, the trampolines, Nintendo Switches apparently. So think about it. The cross-country skis and snowshoes, if we have a snowy winter, those are going to be really big for people to get out and use those outside for exercise and fresh air. So we could see another, you know, we had the kayaks, we had the paddle boards. Now we'll see the, the sleds going out at the You know, you got a door. good point.
0: I cannot remember the last time I pulled out our snowshoes because we just have had these great winters with no snow, which I greatly prefer. But you're right. This winter may be the time where if you get enough, you could certainly use them today.
3: Well, before we go, let me
0: ask, did any of you, were you, any of you
3: in a hurry to get up and clear <coughs> your uh, driveway this morning?
0: No,
1: Um,
3: because we're all
0: working from home.
1: home. (laughs) Because then I had to edit. No story. (laughs) Get ready for the podcast.
2: I only brushed away enough snow so I could put the bag of garbage there because it was garbage day today. Oh, okay.
1: Oh, can I say though real quick? It was my puppy's first time in the snow. He's eight months old and he was just like, this is so cool. It's the
0: greatest thing for a puppy. (laughs) We are doing a story about how hybrid districts are dealing with snow days because if... Half the kids are staying home and half the kids are in school. What do you do if you call snow day? Do you give it to the whole school? Do you give it to half the school? It's a question in my household where I'm married to a teacher. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, good conversation. Bad snowstorm. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE.